Well, good morning. morning. I want to say thank you uh, to your church for welcoming me to be here. My name is Dan Shalero. I came upon uh, the invitation of Mike Kazarowski, who I've known for just a little short of 15 years. I met Mike um, when I was a freshman in high school. It's kind of a twerpy, nerdy freshman who'd never been to youth group before. Uh, Mike was a senior. He invited me to youth group, and he took me out to dinner beforehand. Um, and his uh, really simple uh, acts of kindness and investment in me um, not only just meant so much to me personally, but God used those things to eventually, uh, in many ways, uh, launch me into ministry because of the good experience that I had in youth ministry because of people people like Mike. So I'm incredibly thankful for him, and I hope that you are too. Um, he, he's an awesome guy who loves Jesus, and because of that, I know he loves you too. So um, thankful for Mike. Uh, I hail from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I bring greetings from Baker Mayfield and Odell Beckham Jr. And also... Our sincere condolences for losing all of your skill players and inevitably the AFC North. So our, our sincere condolences to you ahead of time. Um, well, before I get run off the stage, let's open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 will be the verses we'll study this morning. Uh, if if you're uh, if you haven't been in First John uh, reading it lately, it might be helpful for a little refresher on uh, where we step into the Bible here. Uh, the Apostle John is writing this letter to a church, a group of believers uh, who are going through uh, turmoil and difficulties and facing many doubts. Uh, the difficulties facing their church are coming from both within and without the church, um, and John is writing to these believers for the sake of their confidence and assurance in the faith in the midst of troubled times. Uh, If you look at verse 13 of chapter 5, you'll see what many have seen as the purpose statement of uh, this, this entire letter where John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. That's the purpose of why John is writing this letter to these believers. And as we step into these verses in chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, we'll see throughout the letter that John is working out the means by which we can be assured in our faith. And in chapter 4, he addresses the theme of love, of Christian love, and addresses why it is a means, but the evidence of Christian love in the Christian life is a means by which we can experience assurance in our faith and confidence that we have eternal life. In Christ Jesus. So let's read these verses together. I'll read for us in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Please pray with me as we ask for God's help this morning. Gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, 
We pray that you would speak out of your word this morning, that you would open our blind eyes, that you would soften our naturally hardened hearts to receive the word that you have for us this morning. God, we had confessed that we uh, come with hearts riddled with sin and doubt and um, a whole variety of things that keep us from uh, hearing your word and that would keep us from focusing on you and uh, seeing you clearly for who you really are. So we pray that you would take away those distractions and those temptations and give us clarity to see your son for who he truly is, to fix our eyes upon him this morning and to transform our hearts and our lives as a result. We need your help to do this, God, and we need your spirit. So speak through me this morning um, and stir up our hearts to love you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, In these verses in 1 John, John is saying that Christian love amongst Christian people is an evidence of genuine faith and eternal life that should give us confidence and assurance. Christian love, the evidence of it in the Christian life, is a means of assurance and an evidence of genuine belief. I have an older brother who competes in strongman competitions. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with what those are, they're just uh, a competition where a bunch of gargantuan human beings uh, do crazy feats of strength, like lift uh, 600-pound atlas stones and haul around car frames and basically just lift and throw and carry heavy stuff all around a gym. And it's fascinating. And I have an older brother who is one of these massive people. And I went to one of his competitions very recently. Uh, it was, um, in Cincinnati. And so I drove little ways and, uh, had put the address to the gym that I'd never been to in my GPS, and it took me there. And when I arrived at the address, it wasn't very clear uh, where the gym actually was. And so I started to question whether I'd actually arrived where I was supposed to be, if it was the wrong address. And I was kind of looking around for signs or for something that looked like a gym. When a car pulled up next to me, and out of this Toyota Corolla emerged what appeared to be a grizzly bear in a tank top holding a protein shake. Um, And I saw him walk into the gym. I said, okay, I think I'm in the right place. Um, And the people who uh, showed up in this gym to compete in this strongman competition, they bore the evidence that they were actually strongmen and that they belong there. In the same way that those men and women bore the evidence that they were competing in this competition, when I arrived, I bore the evidence that I had come as a spectator. (laughs) As you look around your church this morning, and as you interact in your daily lives with fellow believers and fellow Christians at FAC, it's kind of the same thing with the evidence of Christian love in your life. That as you live out life with these people around you, the evidence of love for one another and love for God will be so evident that when somebody new walks into your church and they begin to interact with you, with these people who spend your lives here, they'll walk into this building and they'll go, I think I'm in the right place because I see the love of God evidenced in these people in the way that they treat each other and the way they treat me. And in that way, Christian love, as we see it evidenced in our lives, gives us confidence and assurance that we are children of God. 
As we consider the fact that Christian love is an indispensable characteristic of genuine Christian faith, I believe that in these verses that John gives us this morning from God, we see that point fleshed out in three different ways. So these are our three points for this morning. Number one, our Father is the source and substance of love. We see that in verses 7 and 8. Point number two, our Savior is the perfect picture of love. We see that in verses 9 and 10. And thirdly, our lives embody God's love in verses 11 and 12. Our Father is the source and substance of love. Our Savior is the perfect picture of love. And third, our lives embody God's love. Look with me in verses 7 and 8 for our first point. These verses say this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. John begins these verses as he's working out why we can have confidence and assurance in our eternal life as Christians, and he begins these verses with an appeal for Christians to love one another. It's an appeal for believers to love one another. And the appeal that he makes, as you'll see in these verses, is rooted in the very character of God. Verse 7, we see that God is the source of love. Love is from God. And in verse 8, we see that God is the substance of love. He says that God is love. God is the source and substance of love as John makes this appeal for us to love one another. Now this morning, as we consider what it means to love each other, what it means to see love in the character of God and what Jesus has to do with that, we're immediately confronted with the reality that we live in a world and a society that doesn't quite know what love actually is. Or at least we all have a lot of different ideas about what love actually is and what it means. And as we look around at our culture, the wider culture and the wider worldview of human sexuality and ethics and morality and society and politics, we see it worked out how different all of these definitions of love actually are. And we begin to ask these questions, what does it mean to actually love a person? What does it mean to actually show love to other human beings? Does loving someone simply mean that we affirm them, that we tolerate their behavior, that we let them do anything that seems right to them? Does loving someone simply mean that you do whatever you believe is in another person's best interests? We have all these different vague, ambiguous, emotionally feeling-driven ideas of what love is. We have this idea that You know, at the end of the day, love wins. And you've heard these ideas that love is love is love is love. And love is whatever you want it to be and whatever you make it out to be. Our society has subscribed to a bit of a definitionless definition of love. It's kind of up to your subjective opinion and experience. And in that kind of a world, we find that loving people becomes kind of a blind stab in the dark, or we have to just try and figure out for ourselves what it means to be loving. I hope that you see this morning, as we look to God's word, that that is not at all the picture or the definition of love that God gives us. We see here that love has a definition, and love has a criteria, and love has a reference point. 
And that reference point is rooted in the very character of a God who has revealed himself to his people in objective and clear terms. Love comes from God and God is love. God is the only source of love and he is the only substance of love. That means some drastic things for us as we consider what love looks like in this world that we live in. That means that any true love that you can possibly experience in this world and in this life, any true love that you experience can only come from God himself. It can only be drawn from his character. And any love that we actually show or experience to other people, it can only possibly be defined by the character of God. So when it comes to love in this world, there's only one well that we can actually draw from, believer or unbeliever alike. And it's God's character. And that's the very reason why we can't ascribe to this definitionless definition of love. And we can't say love is love is love is love or whatever feels right to me is the loving thing to do. Because if whatever you say you're doing that is loving, if whatever you feel uh, right in the moment that you think it's loving, if it falls outside of the character of God or the will of God as it has been revealed to us in the Bible then we have to believe that it falls short of a true definition of what love actually is. Love is defined by the very character of God, and it is derived by the very person of God. And if God is love, we have to understand that it doesn't mean that love is just like this tool on God's tool belt that he carries around with him and uses every once in a while. This, these verses say God is love. His very essence is the definition of what it means to love. And that means that if God is love, then everything that he does is loving. Not only his acts of grace and mercy and loving kindness, but we also have to come to the grips with the fact that if God is love, then that also includes his acts of justice and judgment and wrath. God is the very definition of love. As we get this comprehensive picture of what love actually is, I want you to, as now we see how it relates to us as well, turn back to chapter 3, verse 1, and see just really quickly here, uh, John, before he gets to chapter 4 and talks about love, he addresses love prior to this. And he kind of goes in circles and addresses these themes over and over again as he develops this argument for why we can have assurance in our faith. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. You see, the love of God, as it is experienced by those who have been saved by Jesus, is not a love that is just this experience or this subjective feeling of a warm bear hug that gives you goosebumps. But the love of God is the implications are so massive that the love of God has effectively adopted you into God's family, according to what the Bible says. That those who have experienced God's love can actually be called children of God because they are. God's love has adopted us into his family. And believers have experienced the love of God in such a way that it has completely changed their identity. One of the best moments of my life 
I have a wife and two kids. One of the best moments of my life was when my wife, Emily, gave birth to my firstborn son, Leo. It was three years ago. Um, I, it was a surreal moment in the delivery room uh, when my wife gave birth to my son. One of the things that I will never forget, and the picture is ingrained in my mind, is the first time that I saw my son's face. I have this dimple just on the right side of my face, on my cheek. It's not on the left side. It's just on the right side. It's really weird and unique, and I've had it ever since I was a baby. The first thing that I saw when I saw my son's crying face is he has the exact same dimple on the exact same part of his face. And it was this beautiful moment where I looked at my son, and I said, that is my son. He belongs to me, and I'm his father, and he's my child. And since then... Unfortunately, he just looks so much like me. Um, for his sake, it's unfortunate. Um, but he, when people see us in church, uh, they say, oh, that's a Shalero boy. And he, and it's an undeniable fact that when you look at my son and then you look at me, you say, this is this child's father. And the cool thing is, is that my son doesn't need to do anything to try to look like his dad. It's just by virtue of the fact that he is my son, that he bears my resemblance. And he, we share these characteristics. The way that John speaks about love in the Christian life is not this thing that we try and muster up all these good acts of charity and love and service so that we can try and be like something that we're not. But he's saying, you who have been loved are children of the Father who is love. And you will look like your dad. And when people see you, they will recognize that you are a child of the Father who is love. Now, on the negative side of this, Paul is also saying, for those who claim to believe, yet their lives are not characterized by the love of God, they themselves prove that they are not actually a part of God's family. John Stott helpfully says this. He says, for the loveless Christian to profess to know God and have been born of God is like claiming to be intimate with a foreigner whose language we cannot speak or to have been born of parents who we do not in any way resemble. Do you see why John is using this picture of Christian love as a means of assurance and confidence for Christians? Because in just the same way that if my son ever begins to worry that he's not a part of our family or he thinks that I'm not his dad, I can just say, Leo, just go look in the mirror. You belong to our family and there's no denying it. And that leaves us with the question this morning. Say, if we ever have doubts we ever worry that we're not part of God's family, that if you genuinely believe on Jesus and if you're actually a part of his family and you've experienced that transforming love and grace that comes from Jesus, you can look in the mirror and you ask the question, do I look anything like God, my heavenly father? And it's a question every single one of us should consider for ourselves. Now, to be able to look in the mirror and to answer that question well, we have to move on to point number two where we see that our Savior is the perfect picture of love. Verses 9 and 10 says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 9, we see that the love of God is revealed or manifested through our Savior Jesus. And then in verse 10, we see that the love of God is defined by the saving Jesus. 
You see, I think that these verses are actually the most crucial to this passage, and they're at the heart of what John is telling us about this Christian love evidenced in our lives. Because it's one thing to understand that God is the source and substance of love, but it doesn't mean anything to us if we don't have a means by which we can actually experience that love and see it for ourselves. Imagine I approached any one of you and I took a big sheet, uh, stack of sheet music and it's Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and I just plopped it on your lap and I said, isn't that beautiful? You say, well, if you'd ever heard the piece of music before, you'd say, of course it's beautiful, but it's just a stack of papers until a conductor stands up in front of an orchestra and actually plays out those notes for people to hear. It's the same way in what Jesus has done in manifesting and revealing the love of God in the same way that this sheet music needs to be made manifest through an orchestra led by a conductor. The perfect love of God, the essence of God's loving character, everything that he is, the perfect picture, the perfect manifestation, the perfect revelation of God's love is manifested to us through his son. Jesus. And Jesus is the perfect and most clearest means by which we can experience the love of God. In sending his only son into the world for our sake, we see the essence of his loving character in a way that we never would have otherwise seen it. And the reason that the act of sending his son is the fullest expression of love is because of what Jesus has done. It's because of what Jesus has done in his life and his death and his resurrection. And that's at the heart of what John is talking about here. Verse 10, in this is love. Here's what love isn't. Not that we first love God negatively, but positively because he loved us, sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, if we want a definition of love, we we can do nothing better than to look closely at these verses and fix our eyes on Jesus and see exactly what it is that Jesus has done that defines love for us and have the humility and the vulnerability to understand that the way that Jesus defines love here is not the way that we always define love for ourselves. So let's look at these verses together. Jesus is the perfect picture of love because love takes initiative. Because love finds its definition not that we loved God first in a way that somehow provoked God's affection for us or pushed a button that made us deserve God's love, but simply because he first loved us. While we were still weak, when we had nothing to offer God, Christ dies for the ungodly. Love takes initiative. Love is selfless. Verse 9, God sent his only son for us. Maybe this is what hits us the hardest when we think about the way that we often love other people. Jesus confronts us when he says how easy it is to love the people who are lovely, to love the people who are our friends. Even the tax collectors and the Gentiles do that. That's not love. So often that is, it can be love, but so often it's self-serving. So often we want to scratch other people's backs so that ultimately they'll scratch ours. Not at all a picture of what Jesus has done for us in loving us. Consider what Augustine said. He said, love is the delight of the lover in his beloved. Love's heartbeat is its delight 
in someone else or something else. Love is selfless. Love is self-sacrifice. Look at verse 10. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a word that means to be a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. Propitiation is an atoning sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. Let's pause on this one for a moment because this is where the wider culture and the rest of our world kind of packs their bags and leaves because they go, as soon as you start trying to define love and you talk about wrath, that's where you lose me. Because love and wrath can't possibly have anything to do with each other. People say, I don't, I don't like the God of the Old Testament with all that wrath. I want the New Testament Jesus. I like certain passages because love is love is love is love. God's love and God's wrath are oil and water. They can't possibly mix. Well, as we look at what John has to say here, I want to help us to see how quickly that logic falls apart and see why exactly Jesus is a propitiation for our sin has everything to do with the perfect picture of love. Think about this for a moment. Larry Nasser got 175 years in prison for unspeakable, unthinkable, horrific crimes against over 150 different women. This judgment has been handed down by a judge. Now, place yourself in that courtroom and imagine that as the judge stands before the jury and Larry Nasser and the rest of the court and the victims, that the judge stands before that group and says, as an act of love, I have chosen to let Larry Nasser go free. And he's been cleared of all charges. And he's set free to walk out of this courtroom with none of this guilt held against him. You consider that for a moment. You say, there is no person on this earth that could possibly think that that is a loving act that that is a loving thing to do. Why is that? Why is that so wrong? Why at the bottom of everything that we are, we know that that would not be a loving thing to do? Because ultimately, there is something inside of us that knows that love is concerned with what is true. And love is concerned with what is good. And love is concerned with what is just. And that's because the very character of God is all about what is true and good and just. Paul hits us on the head in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, when he says, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. Our definition of love has to be rooted in what is true and what is good. And this is why the gospel is so incredibly beautiful for sinners like you and me. Because you and I walk into a courtroom with a litany of charges set against us of sin against God, of sins that we can't even keep track of and that we couldn't even count for the ways that we have rebelled against God and sinned against him and suppressed the truth and completely denied who God is as our creator. And we are sinful creatures. And we stand in that courtroom guilty. But God doesn't say, as an act of love, I'm going to wipe the slate clean and you can go free. Because that wouldn't be good. And that wouldn't be just. But God, 
in maintaining his perfect love, but also maintaining everything that is true and good and just in his character. What does he do? He sends his son and Jesus, innocent Jesus, steps forward in that courtroom and he doesn't ask for a plea bargain. He doesn't ask that the charges be dropped. He takes all of the guilt on himself and he says, let the full wrath and judgment of the law rain down, not on him, not on her, but let it come down on me. And perfect, innocent Jesus takes all of the guilt and all of the shame and all of the judgment that we deserved as our propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice. And in taking that upon himself, he takes our guilt and our sin and he exchanges his righteousness, his obedience, his perfection, and that becomes ours. And the wrath and the judgment that once rested on every single one of us prior to knowing Jesus, it's been turned and transformed into favor. Praise God that this is what love is, that it's not some cheap version of love that turns a blind eye to sin, but it actually deals with the problem of sin. It deals with that thing deep down inside of each and every one of us that knows that we are sinners who have sinned against a holy God. And his perfect son is the person who has taken that, that pain and that punishment and that judgment for us. And in the supreme act of love, he's turned all of that to favor for us. Praise God that Jesus has defined for us love in this way. If you believe this, the wrath of God that rested on you has been turned to favor because of what Jesus has done for you. And you've been set free. You've been set free to what we'll see here in this third point, to live lives that embody God's love in verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So verse 11, John moves from this beautiful description and definition of love in Jesus and then makes this just logical appeal that if we've been loved this way, if that is really true of us, we ought to love one another if you really place yourself in the reality of I stood in that courtroom with not a chance in the world to not have this judgment passed down on me, but then to have someone innocent take my place, you walk out of that courtroom, you say, I have to love other people in the same way. There's just no other option when this kind of love has transformed your identity and has set you free. As much as I understand this picture of being set free from this courtroom, it will transform the way that I look at other people. Because we step into reality and we understand that a lot of people are really hard to love. You can probably make a list of people this week who have given you a list of reasons that they annoy you, a list of reasons that they don't deserve your love, a list of reasons that uh, even though you have loved them, they haven't reciprocated it. We all have lists for people of the things that they've done against us or the reasons that we shouldn't have to love them back. But you step back and you go back to that courtroom and you see the list of sins that you had against God that was longer than you could ever count. And you understand that you've been forgiven of that sin. 
And then we compare those two things and you say, the sins of other people against me are infinitely smaller than this list of sins that I have been freely forgiven of by Jesus Christ. And it transforms our perspective and it changes the way we think about people. It's what Jesus is talking about in this parable where he talks about this unforgiving servant. He's forgiven a debt of over 20 years of wages that he could never pay. And the master absorbs the debt upon himself and lets him go free. And immediately this servant leaves this situation and finds a servant who owes him really only a day's wages and chokes him and beats him and throws him into prison. Any person hears that parable and they go, what a fool. What an incredible lack of perspective for someone who's just been forgiven so much to forgive, to not be able to forgive a debt of so little. That is you and I, every single time we fail to forgive anyone in our lives. We've lost perspective on the massive debt that has been forgiven of us, that we, we couldn't pay it back. You could never pay it back, but Jesus absorbed it. This inevitably leads to the fact that we have to treat other peoples with forgiveness because of how much we have been forgiven. Verse 12, John describes positively what happens when Christians love each other and what God does in and through Christians who love each other. He says, no one has ever seen God. The idea being that ultimately God is invisible to this world apart from what we see in his word and what we see perfectly in Jesus. So there are people in your life, in your school, at your work, in this neighborhood, in Erie, Pennsylvania, who have never seen the love of God actually lived out or actually described to them or actually put on display for them. And they're held in bondage to all these uh, false notions about what love actually is. But the incredible responsibility that the church is given here, according to John, is that we make the invisible God that people have never seen visible for the world to see in the way that we love each other. God abides in us by his spirit, but John is saying that reality actually becomes visible to the watching world when we love each other. And when John says that God's love is perfected in us or completed in us, he means that God's people and God's redemptive plan for his, all of his people and what he's done through Jesus and the final plan for what he will do. God's people are the final piece that complete the circuit of God's love. John Stott says this, it would be hard to exaggerate this conception. This whole paragraph is concerned with God's love and we must not stagger at the majesty of this conclusion. God's love, which originates in himself and was manifested in his son is made complete in his people. It is brought to perfection within us. Do you see the responsibility that we have as those who are brought into this church, as those who are believers, of those who have experienced this 1 John 4 love, this love that took our place when we didn't deserve it? We have the privilege and the opportunity and the responsibility to complete the circuit of God's love. So Ian, let me bring you back to the picture of the sheet music as we think about what is our part that we play as believers 
in seeing and experiencing and showing the love of God to others. God the Father has written this beautiful symphony of love. Jesus, his son, stands before the orchestra as the conductor. And you and I, instruments of love in hand, have the great privilege and responsibility to play out the notes of this beautiful symphony of love for the whole world to hear. So FAC, this week as you go out, fix your eyes on your conductor. Let your heart cherish the very character and essence of a loving God and play out the notes of love for the whole world to hear. Let's pray. Gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we bless you and we thank you and we just glory in the fact that you have given us uh, a definition for true love, that you have given us access to experience true love. Thank you, God, that you are the source and substance of love. And we thank you, God, that you've given us a perfect picture of what that love looks like in your son, Jesus. God, we confess that we are so guilty and all of the charges that were set against us, we deserve them, we were guilty of them, uh, but we praise you and we thank you that Jesus steps in. And even though he was innocent, he took all of our guilt on himself. It's the perfect picture of true love, God. As we've experienced this, for those who have experienced this, we pray, God, that that would transform the way that we view other people, the way that we love other people. I pray, God, if there's anyone in this room who's never actually experienced that love of Jesus, that this would be the morning that they confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that your son died for their sins so that they too can experience um, your favor in exchange for their guilt. God, thank you for this morning, for a chance to dwell on your love for us. As we bring our offerings to you now, we pray that uh, you would give us uh, cheerful hearts uh, to give just a small portion of what you've given us back. Thank you, God. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray all this in his name. Amen.